Welcome to the Cost of Not Paying Attention, hosted by nationally recognized speaker Janine Hamner Holman. Janine knows what it takes to attract and retain world class talent. Join her here each week on the Cost of Not Paying Attention as we use brain science, leadership, management, and real life challenges managers face to explore the places where we aren't paying attention. Welcome to The Cost of Not Paying Attention. I'm your host, Janine Hamner-Holman. What am I paying attention to today? The power of humility. Our guest gave me a definition of humility, which I so love, or maybe it's a partial definition. And one of the things that I love about it is we have collapsed so many different ideas. Like when we think of vulnerability, we have collapsed that with weakness. And man, when we are vulnerable, it takes strength. It takes courage. It takes leaning in. And humility, we have collapsed with thinking less of ourselves. And part of what I love was in one of my very first conversations with our guest, one of the things that he said is humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less and of others more, not thinking less of ourselves. And I thought that was just brilliant. So with that, I am thrilled to introduce our guest for today. Yonason Goldson is the director of Ethical Imperatives. I just love that. They work with leaders to create a culture of ethics that builds trust, sparks initiative, and drives productivity. He's a keynote and TEDx speaker trainer, coach, community rabbi, as well as a podcast host, a columnist, an author, I'm gonna talk a little bit more about that in a second, a repentant hitchhiker, a world traveler, and a retired high school teacher who is joining us from St. Louis. He has published hundreds of articles applying ancient rabbinic wisdom to the challenges of the modern secular world. He's also the author of six books, most recently, Grappling with the Gray, an ethical handbook for personal success and business prosperity. Welcome, Yonason. Thank you, Janine. The way you read that introduction, usually the host just like to buzz through the introductions. And it's clear you were paying attention to what you were reading. (laughs) I'd also practiced it. So (laughs) I do have to just mention as much as I would love to take credit for that quote about humility, I must give credit to the person I heard it from, not in person, but Rick Warren, 
Excellent. The, uh, noted pastor who wrote The Purpose Driven Life. Yes. And it resonates with me the way it resonated with you. Yeah. So I attribute to you, you attribute to him, and maybe he will then attribute to somebody else. It's one of the things that I love about being intentional about where some of our ideas come from is then we get to give credit where credit is so wonderfully due. And it connects right back to your frame of ethics, which I really love. And I'm sure that we will get into more. So as I begin most of our podcasts with, I'm going to ask you this question. What is something that you have become aware of that either intentionally or unintentionally people aren't paying attention to? And what's been the cost of that non-attention? Very interesting. I actually had a response formulated, but just <laughs> in since we started, different ideas popped into my head that I think is really much more relevant. What we aren't paying attention to are the ideas that are being articulated because we are focused instead on who is articulating them. Oh. I mean, we live in a society that's becoming more and more polarized. Mm -hmm. And just to give you an example of how this works, Tulsi Gabbard, the congresswoman from Hawaii who ran for president, happens to be one of my modern day heroes, she described what it was like on the first day she took office. And it was all the freshman congressmen and everybody's together and the Republicans and the Democrats, it's all kumbaya. Everybody's <laughs> so happy. And then they went off to their respective parties and they were told, if the other party proposes a bill, vote against it. And in fact, she said one particular mm -hmm. bill. And I think she said she voted for it, despite the fact it was proposed by the opposition party. And two years later, her party proposed the same bill, and then it was okay to vote for it. And we wonder why nothing's getting done. We wonder why our leaders have such low uh, poll ratings. Right, um, approval ratings. Yeah, exactly. It is we're not paying attention to the message because we're focused on the messenger. It's all become politicized. It's all become ideological. And we do ourselves such a profound disservice and it's not just politics. We're right. It's, it's beliefs. It's values. It's really everything in our lives. We are so territorial. We're so tribal mm -hmm. in our ideologies, in our way of thinking, that we simply retreat into our enclaves. We keep parroting the same slogans, the same bromides. And anybody who steps out of line... <laughs> Right. Off with their head. Heresy. <laughs> Excommunication. Exactly. This is not the way a society can function. We have to engage people who don't think like us. And this is what it means to be ethical. It means that I examine all the different available ways of looking at a topic, of thinking about a subject, and I evaluate them. It may turn out that I remain committed to my initial point of view, but at least I'm going to understand it better. I'm going to be more secure in my understanding. And every once in a while, I might actually discover there's another way of looking at things. Maybe I've even been wrong. And isn't it better to discover I've been wrong than to persist in being wrong? Oh, 
I love this way of thinking and three quarters of the way through Adam Grant's new book, Think Again. And he's talking about the power of challenging our ideas about things and about why for humans, it's so hard both to look at our thinking and to look at how we've thought about something and be open, be curious about the possibility of changing what we have thought. And I love it that you're connecting that to ethics and connecting that to what it means to live a life that is in line with our ethical values. So tell me more about that. Tell me more about how curiosity and how openness can connect to our values. Because often we think about, you know, these are my values and this is what I believe. So I'm not going to question it. That would be heretical to myself. And I'm only going to hang out with people who think and believe and see the world in the same way that I do. I'm going to be in a bubble that reflects what I believe. Yeah, so in my TED Talk, I open it and I close it with the same questions I ask the audience. I ask them to ask themselves, hmm. where did you get your values? Where did your beliefs come from? Mm-hmm. Did you choose them or did they choose you? Because we absorb so much from our parents and our teachers and our peers and the news media and the entertainment industry And how many of us have actually reasoned our way to what we believe? And the danger in that we've already talked about, that we don't give ourselves the opportunity to really choose, to really evaluate what we believe and what our positions are. But more than that, it makes us so insecure because on some level we realize we really don't know what we're talking about. We really (laughs) can't defend our positions. And therefore it's easier to attack anyone who thinks otherwise Mm -hmm. and discredit them so that we don't have to face the responsibility of actually having to defend our own positions. Mm. But I often quote my college English professor, Max Bird, who said, I don't understand why people complain about being disillusioned. I would like to be relieved of my illusions. (laughs) Oh, that's a brilliant line. And I can see why you have retained it. As you were talking about that, and I love it that you made a connection to school, because remembering back, I had a very challenging experience when I went to college I ended up at a wonderful, beautiful campus, which was part of what drew me to it, this sort of bucolic campus. And when I was there, I ended up really being challenged in a lot of the beliefs that I had grown up with, because it turned out a lot of the students who went to this college had very different belief systems. So I had to defend, I had to look at and figure out, all right, so of these beliefs that I grew up with, what am I actually willing to defend? What am I going to hold to? And what am I going to release and why? And so few of us are ever 
in that situation where our views are really being thoughtfully challenged or where we're open to thoughtfully challenging our own views. So what ideas do you have? Here we are at this moment in time where we've been living through a pandemic and now organizations are thinking about how do we go back to work? How do we meld a hybrid work culture potentially where some are in the office and some are at home? What has our organizational culture been? What do we want to hold on to? What do we want to let go of? So I think this idea of looking at our values is super timely right now, especially because, as you also said, we're so polarized and we're living in and through this time of really looking at what it means to be a privileged person in our culture, what it means to be a non-privileged person in our culture, what sort of the systemic systems are based on race, on ethnicity, on income level, on education, on religion, sort of all of these different ways that we group people and then make judgments and create biases about who those people are. I think this idea of really looking at what are the values that we want to hold on to and what are the values that we want to really examine and decide, all right, so is this who we want to be going forward? I think this is the perfect moment in time for everybody to run out and grab Hansen's book, Grappling with the Gray. I mean, what a great title because it's both the living in between the black and the white, the gray, and also the gray inside of our heads. I think it's brilliant. As we get older, Um, it's a different kind of gray. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. So what thoughts do you have about how people can start that examination process? If they're just now thinking, oh boy, Maybe I should lean in a little. Maybe I should examine some of this stuff. How can somebody get started? Well, you touched on so many ideas. (laughs) (laughs) There's so many different ways we could go. But I often cite the example from Jewish history. 2,000 years ago, there were two great academies of Jewish study. And they had very, very different approaches and philosophies And history records that when they debated each other in the study hall, they argued with such passion, it was as if they fought with swords and spears. But when they left the study hall, they were friends. It was never personal. Mm -hmm. Because each school recognized the sincerity and the intellectual and moral integrity of the other. How did they recognize that? Because they listened. Because they made the effort to understand the other point of view before insisting that they were right. And in fact, the school that we follow is called the House of Hillel. They're the ones who recorded the tradition of their rulings, but they always recorded both rulings. Mm. There's and the other school. And they always recorded the minority view first. 
Because until you understand what someone else believes, you can't understand what you believe. If I can't explain why you believe what you believe, how can I be sure you're wrong? And if I can't articulate why you might reasonably disagree with me, how can I be sure I'm right? And so, again, it comes back to this ideological divide. We have to recognize that the world is not divided up into neat binary choices. It's not all black and white. And in fact, very little of it is. And when it's black and white, then things are relatively easy. Mm -hmm. But most of life is in that gray area shades of right and wrong, sometimes choosing between right and right or wrong and wrong. Right. And it's a question of prioritizing. And well, if we understand that we have essentially the same values, there's no reason if you study, or not even study, just read the definitions of classical liberalism and classical conservatism, they're not at odds with each other. Right. They work very neatly together. In fact, Edmund Burke is considered both a conservative and a liberal (laughs) because he incorporated the respect for the traditions of the past and the values that evolved through society. And he had a forward-looking view. How can we work to make society better? There's no reason that those have to be in conflict, but it all comes down to personalities and ideologies and power struggles. We do ourselves, again, such a tremendous disservice when we don't make the effort to understand both sides. And when we do, often we'll discover we have more in common than we have that divides us. And we can work together and we come out stronger together than the sum of our parts. Mm -hmm. It's not that hard, except increasingly our society is set up to short circuit our efforts to come together and find principled compromise. Uh, As you said to me, oh man, you brought in so many different things in that. And I'm going to go back to where you started with the idea of listening. There is something called the International Journal of Listening, which, what? I had no idea that such a thing existed before I started working with organizations about what it actually means to listen. So I found this statistic, which I haven't quoted it in a while, so I won't necessarily get this right, so don't hold me to this, but it's something like 92% of our time, when we think we are listening, we are in fact doing something else. And so often what we're doing is we're listening to the voice in our head or So I'm listening to you, but I'm listening through the lens of, do I agree with this or do I not agree with this? As opposed to listening to learn, being curious about what's he going to say next? What's his perspective? And I'm working with a client right now where two of the principals in the organization cannot get along. And often what is happening is they are, in fact, agreeing with each other but they're saying different things and not hearing the agreement. And it's so common, especially inside of organizations where we need to be working together, 
that we forget to listen for that commonality. And instead we're listening for how are we different as opposed to how are we the same. I love this acronym that you have for ethics. Could you walk our listeners through that, please? Absolutely. And of course, one of the challenges of ethics is that we don't all have a clear definition of what ethics is. Right. I like to say that ethics is the discipline of recognizing and taking responsibility for the impact our actions have on others. Oh, that was great. Can you say that again? Ethics is the discipline of recognizing and taking responsibility for the impact our actions have on others. And that works on a microcosmic and a macrocosmic level, because even when I'm in private, the actions, the choices I make, they affect, they transform me. Yep. Which will then impact all those with whom I come in contact. Right. So when I talk about ethical leadership, it has more to do not with the choices we make per se, but with the character traits we cultivate that then enable us to make better decisions more of the time. Hmm. And so the E of ethics is empathy. Hmm. We have to start by relating to those people with whom we come in contact, feel their pain, feel their joy, especially for bosses, for managers. What are their wants? What are their desires? Because it's only when we have that sensitivity towards others that it's possible to consider how our actions are going to affect them. Mm -hmm. The T is trustworthiness. And that doesn't just mean that we are trustworthy ourselves, but also that we're willing to trust others. Uh, Because if we don't trust other people, why are they going to trust us? Mm -hmm. And of course, we all know that micromanaging doesn't work. And yet too <laughs> and many of us too many, yes. too many of us try to do it anyway. Right. And that's a lack of trust, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about it's like <laughs> I raised four children. And when you need to help your kids with their homework, yeah. it's a lot easier to do it for <laughs> them. <laughs> yes, it is. My wife used to joke, you know, Mrs. So-and-so is doing very well in fourth grade. Um <laughs> it was clear that she was doing her kids' homework. Right. Well, made it easy on her, made it easy on the teacher. The kid didn't benefit. Right. So that's the element of trust. The H is humility, which we already talked about. Mm-hmm. Right? It's the willingness. When I admit that I don't know something mm-hmm. or I got something wrong, mm-hmm. that doesn't make me look weak. It gives me credibility, especially for those times when. I need to assert that I'm right. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. So if people know that you can admit it when you're wrong, they're going to believe you more when you really need them to get behind what you're saying. Exactly. The I is inquisitiveness. Mm-hmm. And we talked about curiosity. It's important yeah. to always want to learn more, mm. to never assume we know it all. <laughs> The C is courage. Mm-hmm. By the way, when I'm talking about leaders, I say the I is inquisitiveness. When I'm talking about employees, I say the I is initiative. Huh. Okay. Because there are times when we have to 
read a situation. We have to respond to something that may not be exactly on the checklist. Right. And we can point to all kinds of incidents where people didn't take the initiative and disaster struck yep. because they didn't feel they had the authority. That goes back to trust. Right. right. Yeah. I was just thinking that the I and the T are super. I mean, these are all. They all are. And the C yeah. as well, because the C is courage. Yeah. Uh, it's scary to admit you're wrong. It's scary to admit you don't know. It's scary to take responsibility. It's scary to take initiative. This is why you need a culture of ethics because that promotes all of these different character traits, recognizes them, encourages them. And finally, the S is self-discipline. And I started with my definition of ethics as the discipline of recognizing and taking responsibility, because this is not a checklist. You don't go down at once and say, finished. It is a process that we return to again and again and again, always trying to improve, always trying to take ourselves to the next level. Awesome. I love it. And before we wrap up, I want to give you an opportunity. I gave a little plug for the book, but tell our listeners a little bit more about what you're grappling with in Grappling with the Gray. So Grappling with the Gray starts with an introduction that lays out my seven principles of ethics. But the body of the book is a collection of vignettes, scenarios of ethical dilemmas. Some are from headlines, Mm -hmm. some are real stories, some are made up stories. Mm -hmm. The idea is not to decide who's right, who's wrong, what's right, what's wrong. The purpose is to try and see each issue from both sides. Mm -hmm. And so I have a few thought questions that follow each scenario, Mm -hmm. and then a short guided discussion. It's best to read the book with a partner Mm -hmm. or or study a book club be great, Mm -hmm. right? Study it in a class. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's actually the publishers marketed as a textbook, but it's Uh not written like a textbook. It's (laughs) it's very readable, very engaging. It's one of those books you could pick up and flip open anywhere. And the whole idea is to condition ourselves, to develop ourselves, to think in ethical terms, Mm. to build our ethical muscles. Because part of ethics is recognizing that we're not going to get it right all the time. We're human beings. Those shades of gray can make come so murky that we're not always going to have confidence. Right. And maybe there is no good choice because that happens too. It certainly does. But what we want to do is we want to equip ourselves as best we can to grapple with those kinds of dilemmas so that we can get it more right more of the time. Uh, so as we've been talking today, I keep thinking about the connection between one of the things that I'm working with a number of clients on, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and how much that connects with this idea of ethics that you're talking about. Do you see that connection? You were just nodding as I was talking. Do you see that connection as well? And what are the threads that we can weave here a little for, for our listeners? Yeah, and as a matter of fact, and this, this was before the recent focus so much on these subjects, I belong to the National Speakers Association. And, and at one meeting, we were introducing ourselves. And then I said, I work with ethics. And one of the fellow members came up and said to me, do you talk about diversity and inclusion? Mm-hmm. 
if I weren't using equity yet. Right. <laughs> And by that point, I had conditioned myself to answer every question, yes, and then, <laughs> and then consider. <laughs> the joy but, of being a consultant. Yes, I can do that. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yeah, because often, and that's what happened here, is that it never occurred to me to go into that space. And yet, once I started thinking about it, it seemed like a natural progression. Yep. And what I like to talk about is intellectual diversity. Mm -hmm. What is the benefit? Sure, you want to have all the different groups right. represented. But then you start getting into this arithmetic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, okay, who's what percentage of what and when? Of course, that's impossible because right. you have all these overlaps. And, because and it's hopefully also we're all of some sort yeah, of I mean, It's a fairly insophisticated way of looking at things. Right. What's so important about different cultures, different points of view, different at this, is that we all have different points of view. We see things in different ways. In Jewish law, two brothers were not allowed to testify in the same court case huh. because the fear was that having grown up in the same environment, uh -huh. they would share the same unconscious biases. Huh. And therefore, they might think they were reporting accurately and mm -hmm. objectively mm -hmm. what they saw, but they wouldn't realize that they shared the same subjective predispositions. Right. And so you need people who have some distance from one another to get as close as you can to a measure of objective truth. Mm -hmm. And so in any institution, academics, business, politics, yeah. right, you need people representing different perspectives, different points of view, listening to each other. <laughs> Please listen, listening to each other. Listening to understand, as you said, not listening yep. to respond right. <laughs> or rebut. Yep. Right? And this is where diversity is so important. In fact, in the high court in Jewish legislation 2000 years ago, the junior member of the court would always be the first one to speak. Hmm. Because if the head of the court speaks first, well, who's going to argue with them, right? The CEO right. speaks first, who's going to argue with them? Right. And then, of course, the CEO has to keep a deadpan, right? He can't, uh, <laughs> he, she right? can't register approval or disapproval. Right. Let everybody have a voice because who knows what ideas haven't been thought of yet? Right. Who knows what perspectives may emerge from the discussion? the more diversity you have of thought, right. as long as we have common core values, the more diversity of perspective, the more vibrant and variegated the discussion becomes. Right. And, and then that's the how we get, yeah, that's where we get the better outcomes. Yeah, I use the example, I talk about cultural fruit salad. <laughs> because if you want to serve fruit, you can make a smoothie. Yeah. Put it on the blender, whip it up, and, and everybody's included. Right. <laughs> but you've lost your diversity. Right. right. You could you, you can have the fruit separate from the blueberry. Right. Yeah. You can have the fruit. Uh, you could have the fruit salad as the appetizer, and you have the fruit cake as the dessert. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're not interacting at all. But a right. fruit salad, you have pieces of individual fruit, each of which has its own character and identity, but all mixed together in a common presentation. 
Mm-hmm. When we focus too much, Jonathan Haidt talks about this in his book, The Righteous Mind. Is the, it's shown statistically, the more we focus on differences, the further apart we end up. Yep. It doesn't mean we have to compromise our identities. It doesn't mean we can't be true to ourselves. But focus instead on what we have in common. And then we bring our unique selves to the relationship. That's when you have a dynamic, healthy, vibrant culture that is going to produce enduring and positive results. I love it. All right. So I'm looking at our time. I was about to take us into the arena of psychological safety and how you create that in organizations and the connection between that and ethics. So I think that's going to have to be for another episode. I'll have you back and we'll just continue talking about this wonderful, fascinating topic. Thank you so much for your time and your insights. This has been a delight. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, you're more than welcome. I am Janine Hamner-Holman, and this has been The Cost of Not Paying Attention. Remember, great leaders make great teams. Until next time. On behalf of Janine Hamner-Holman, thanks for paying attention. This has been the cost of not paying attention. Head on over to our website, www.janinehamner.com forward slash podcast for access to the show notes as well as additional resources. Remember, great leaders make great teams. I'm beginning to think I'm beginning